Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Uh, hello. Good afternoon. Uh, thank you all for joining us today, especially our panel. Walter Lohman, Director of the Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, earlier this year, we started a program called the China Transparency Initiative. The idea is, no, the Chinese government and the CCP are not what we would call transparent. I don't think any of us would use that word. I mean, we're still trying to figure out whether they're going to have their annual uh, leadership uh, retreat at Beidaiha uh, this month, or maybe they've even already had it and no one seems to know. Uh, so transparency is certainly a problem. But there's quite a bit of data out there, and there are some really fine researchers and organizations outside of China trying to unearth it, uh, systematize it, and analyze it. What we're trying to do with this transparency initiative is bring more attention to all of that great work and to bring it together in one place. There are several elements to our transparency initiative. There's our own foundational research uh, led by Dean Cheng, senior researcher here at Heritage. Uh, you can see his latest uh, uh, background report on this uh, over on the side of your, of your screen there uh, on the handout tab. And we'll be glad to get you that uh, individually as well if, if you need it. It just came out yesterday. It's about the need for transparency and the shortcomings of, of uh, open, source, um, open source resources at this uh, Point in time, uh, we started a series of private sector uh, or private workshops with partners like our friends on the, on the call today. Uh, we started a dedicated newsletter that's highlighting the work of, of our partners and of all the great uh, work that's already been uh, done on this. We have a website coming out on the same. Uh, we'll have an annual report as a part of this project that will, among other things, uh, evaluate the official data that is available, how it's lacking, and where the holes are in a lot of the private research out there. Um, and then finally, we're going to be doing a series of public programs uh, every year uh, to take a closer look at the initiatives that some of our partners are working on, which brings, a, brings us to uh, the topic of the program today. Uh, first, we're going to hear from Zach Cooper about the Hamilton 2.0 dashboard that he runs out of the German Marshall Fund along with Laura Rosenberger. Uh, Zach is a senior fellow at GMF as well as a research fellow at AEI. AEI, we work with quite a bit in uh, GMF as well. Uh, next, we'll hear from Sid Gose. Uh, Sid is Associate Director for the Transparent Development Footprints at AIDATA. Um, he's gonna tell us about their work on China. He's, uh, he's had a little bit of a problem with the compatibility of his system and, and, this, and this software. So he's gonna be speaking to us without uh, video, but he's, he, I know he'll be speaking to uh, a slide, and so maybe that will make a difference. And then last but not least, uh, I say not least because the Stimson Center has done remarkable research on the Mekong now um, for many years, largely outside the spotlight, uh, to, to be honest. And now that the Mekong is emerging as such a big issue and, um, and China is getting so much more attention than it did just a couple of years ago, uh, their work is front and center. Uh, Reagan Kwan from the Stimson Center uh, he'll tell us about uh, the work on their Mekong infrastructure uh, tracker. So uh, with that brief introduction, uh, let me turn it over to Zach, and he can get us started talking about his uh, his Hamilton 2.0 dashboard. Welcome, Zach. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Walter. It's fantastic to be with you, and I really want to thank you and Dean for all of the work that you and everybody at Heritage has done on this transparency effort. I think it's hugely important, uh, and Heritage has done, obviously, a lot of work in this area for years and years. I know my colleague Derek, uh, when he was at Heritage, uh, worked so much on economic transparency on China. And uh, back when I was at CSIS, we had a little project on the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative. And I think the work you're going to see today from the Stimson Center uh, and also from ADATA is just incredibly important. I'll just present uh, a little bit of work that we've done uh, over the last two or three years at the Alliance for Securing Democracy. As, as Walter said, this is part of the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Um, and what we have done is uh, created a dashboard, which we call Hamilton 2.0, and you've got it up there on your slide. Uh, it tracks Chinese, Russian, and Iranian government and state-funded media messages on Twitter. Uh, 
YouTube and English language websites, as well as UN statements. And you can see all of that kind of data that we gather uh, on the slide there. You can toggle on and off different countries. So if you want to compare, for example, what Russia, China, and Iran do, or throw them all together and look at some common trends, you can do that through the website. And um, we gather a lot of data with some critical partners. Vidrover is one of them. They do some really important work on gathering video. Uh, we work with others like Graphica on some of our other uh, data gathering. And uh, what we look at right now is on Twitter, we track more than 600 accounts that are connected to embassies, consulates, ambassadors, other officials, and state media. So you can see on your screen uh, the top 10 accounts for China only by tweets, by likes, by retweets, and this changes uh, hour by hour, and you can, you can watch it as it changes. We do something similar on YouTube. We track uh, what CGTN America and CCTV show, as well as RT and uh, the RT UK YouTube channels, and we actually translate a lot of that data um, from the headlines that go at the bottom of the screen from Chirons. Uh, we, we translate that from other languages, uh, and much of what you'll see, for example, in, in the Russian case is actually that they do a huge amount of work in Spanish language uh, television and Twitter. Uh, they have huge followings. And then finally, uh, we track a number of websites. So for China, we track five state-funded uh, sites. We do the same for Russia and Iran. So let's go to the, the next slide. And so just as we're flipping over to that next slide, uh, I'll note it's you know one thing that's really uh, important about what we try and do is uh, we are trying very carefully to make sure that the accounts that we select are directly affiliated to the government. So um, everything you're gonna see here on this slide, the Facebook reactions, Facebook comments, Facebook shares, those are from accounts that are directly uh, connected either to the government or government-funded media. And uh, often what you'll see is that much of that data actually overlaps. So this is just a, a little bit of our uh, available data that looks at Facebook reactions. And you'll see this is actually China uh, Facebook activity. And the top story, this is from uh, about a week ago, the top several stories were all about Russia. Um, and that's not a surprise to us because in many cases, China, Russia, and Iran have overlapping messages. And in this case, uh, over the last week in particular, China has really been pushing out this message that Russia has uh, been the first to deliver a vaccine. Um, and why, is, why are they doing that? Why are they doing that in English often? Uh, pretty clearly, I think it's to try and show that uh, autocratic governments theoretically can be effective at dealing with COVID and especially to target that uh, towards a US-based audience. Um, if you look further down the list, you'll see that China uh, is uh, talking a lot about how it sanctions, uh, how it has sanctioned 11 U.S. officials over Hong Kong. Um, you'll see some of the tension over uh, what's going on in India uh, shows up down at the bottom of the list. And these are sort of frequent themes. Often uh, what we see in the Chinese media is China trying to build up uh, Chinese uh, stories to build up China and to uh, take uh, little strikes against uh, democratic countries, whether it's the United States or in this case, Germany and France in the fifth story or India uh, for mistakes that they may have made uh, and just any vulnerability that they think they can go after. So um, you can find all of this data and you can uh, play with it. You can look at different elements in great detail and different timeframes at securingdemocracy.gmfus.org slash Hamilton dash dashboard. Uh, and I'll just leave you with one final thought, which is uh, my, my recent favorite finding of ours, which is that if you uh, are on Twitter, uh, you'll often find that um, there are a lot of fake accounts on Twitter, and this is no surprise to anyone. But one thing we found just in the last week looking at Twitter data is that a huge number of Chinese uh, accounts, and these are fake accounts, uh, are actually accounts that have a name and then they have eight uh, digits after that name. 
And I will bet you, if you uh, have a Twitter feed like mine, that if you go back and you look at some of your recent followers, a huge number of them are going to have eight digits at the end of their names, and most of those are probably Chinese accounts. So that's a lot of the kind of data that we're going to pull up with this tool. And you can look at it on our website, the Hamilton 2.0 dashboard, or you can look at it at our partner websites. So I'll leave it there and look forward to the other presentations and debate. Great, right, thank you, Zach. Uh, let me ask you a question before you, you turn off your screen. I know you started off, but if, if maybe you could answer this. Uh, the um, what what happens with this information that you gather, this data? Do you feed it to the social uh, media companies, and do they do they act on it? So, so we do uh, interact pretty frequently with the social media companies, and many of our partners do as well. Uh, we talk to them both about the kinds of activity that they're uh, permitting on their websites and what their rules are for marking certain content. So, you know, we were one of the many organizations that was supporting uh, what Twitter did recently in uh, marking when you have a Chinese government account. And they do the same thing for U.S. government accounts. So now it actually says uh, this is a Chinese linked account, right? Chinese state uh, sponsored media. Um, so we do some of that. Uh, in certain cases, we will go back and forth with those companies about uh, different uh, different individuals that uh, are on Twitter usually, uh, who we think are probably bots or trolls. Uh, and so we do interact with the companies a fair bit. The, the other thing I would say, though, is that um, we have chosen not to take any money from either those technology companies or from foreign governments. So we've tried to be as strictly independent uh, as we can, and we don't take any money from the U.S. government either. Um, so, you know, we try and be uh, a trusted partner to analyze this kind of data. And one thing that we are not quite ready to roll out yet, but that we will do in the future, is we're gathering all this data and we're going to make it all available probably with a university partner so that you can go back and search it, uh, you know, five, ten years from now. It'll all be uh, logged and carefully uh, put into a library system. But right now it's on our website. You can you can search it in great detail if you'd like. And you have to sort through the legitimate comments, I guess, and the and the government organized or party organized content. Um, but both Facebook and Twitter are inaccessible to your average uh, Chinese citizen, right? So, what kind of challenge does that pose for you, or does that make it easier in some sense? You know, in some senses, it makes it a little bit easier because you don't have as much Chinese language activity on Twitter. Um, and so we don't have to translate quite as much of that as we might if they actually did allow Twitter uh, actively in China. Now, there are a huge new number of users that access Twitter through VPNs uh, from China. But, of course, it, it is one of the great ironies of this world we live in that the Chinese are angry at us for banning them from certain technology platforms when the very ones that they're using to uh, do foreign manipulation, whether it's in the United States or elsewhere, are yeah. themselves banned in China. So, yeah, we, we do get around that in large part because over the last year, year and a half, China has exploded the number of um, embassies and consulates that are represented online, especially on Twitter and on Facebook. So we actually do have a lot of content now from the government and government-directed uh, media, even if we don't have as many Chinese users because it's typically banned uh, in most parts of China. Yeah, I see. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Zach. Appreciate it. Um, next, I'd like to call on Sid, uh, Sid Ghost, Associate Director of Transparent Development Footprints at uh, ADATA. Give us an idea what he's working on. Thank you so much, Walter, and thank you to the team at Heritage for having me here, here today. Um, ADATA, for those who aren't familiar with ADATA, is a research lab. We are based in the College of William & Mary, uh, just south of D.C. in Williamsburg, Virginia. Um, I lead a program area within ADATA that is called the Transparent Development Footprints Program. And broadly, we are out to answer one central question, and that is who is funding what? where and to what effect. Um, broadly speaking, you know, TDF is focused on providing publicly available data, evidence, policy analysis on, on China's financial and non-financial overtures to garner influence with other countries. Um, to do this, we work a lot with the US government, various private foundations in the US and continental Europe. 
Now, to sort of ground uh, Eight Data's work that I'm about to highlight over the next five minutes, um, maybe maybe let me ground that by saying that you know we are all aware that there is quite a bit of speculation that. China is using many different tools to influence leaders and citizens in other countries. At the same time, Beijing's lack of transparency about you know, the nature of these tools and the downstream influence makes it extremely difficult for scholars like myself and policy makers to understand the downstream Chinese influence in countries around the world and how best other countries can work either against or alongside China. Now, at a data, our, our belief is that this gap cannot be filled without transparent data. And that's what we've been trying to do as an organization over the last 15 years, focused on providing governments and public uh, publics with the data and evidence to enable them to do two things broadly, maximize the upsides and minimize the downsides when choosing to partner with a country and a regime like China. Now, I mentioned that, you know, we're hoping to close this gap with transparent data. So I'll probably talk about um, the three main things that we are doing to get us and the policy and research community there. Um, we're, we've been, this is the longest running project at Aid Data. Uh, we have a big data collection practice that aims to uncover China's global development footprint. Currently, we maintain the world's most comprehensive project-level data set on Chinese government financing using you know, a combination of loans and grants uh, to fund, fund development and commercial ventures in different parts of the world. Uh, the methodology that we've been employing, some of, some of those on this uh, webinar may be familiar with the tracking underreported financial flows. Um, this is an open source methodology where we you know, mine open source data uh, sources to come up with a project level uh, flat file that basically talks about the precise projects and the life cycle of the projects that China has been funding in various parts of the world. Currently, we have this data set publicly available uh, between 2000 and 2014. Um, we launched this about three to four years back, and since then, we've really changed up the way a data collects this data. We have a lot more details on the actual loan terms, because uh, what we realized in consultation with stakeholders in different parts of the world was often government agencies that have taken on this debt have really no idea of the specifics of the date uh, of, the, of the transaction. And by specifics, I mean the loan terms, uh, the interest rate, the maturity, the collateral, uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, we also have uh, with the new data that we are coming up with, and that's coming out pretty soon towards the end of this year, this will extend our data set through 2018. We've also realized that over time, the, the sophistication of the financial arrangements that China is getting into, whether those are public-private partnerships, whether those are master loan agreements or facilities, uh, we don't really have a great understanding of how all of these big dollars coming out of China is actually hitting the ground. So that's another thing that we've changed in the methodology and this will show in the new data. We're also hoping to have geolocations for large infrastructure projects with the new data that's out there. Um, I, think, uh, I think the folks, have, folks at Heritage have very helpfully uh, included a link to uh, the China page on Aid Data where you'll be able to find all of this data both for download as well as to see some static visualization with key findings that we have out there. Um, that was on the global development footprint. Uh, moving on, um, another uh, area of work that Aid Data has, um, you know, we've taken this on over, I'd like to say, over the last three years, is taking a quantified look at, at Beijing's public diplomacy. And uh, how we've done this over the last couple of years is we've quantified Chinese public diplomacy in approximately 40 countries, uh, some in Central Asia, some in East Asia, some in the Pacific Island region. Uh, where we've basically broken down Beijing's public diplomacy into five sorts of, uh, you know, broad thematic areas. Those thematic areas being money, media, human exchanges, cultural exchanges, and relations between elites uh, in different countries. And we've essentially tried to study how China uses various tools across these five domains to influence popular perception and leader perception in its favor. Um, uh, these have resulted in three reports that Aid Data has taken on, along with Bonnie Glazier and co. at CSIS's China Power and Deborah Eisenman and her team at the Asia Society's Policy Institutes. Uh, all of these reports and the resulting data sets on, on Chinese soft power, shock power, call, you, call, call it what you will, are available on our websites right now. Um, finally, 
Um, we are also very squarely focused on making sure that all of this data and policy analysis that I've spoken about is easily accessible by people who are hoping to take decisions based on this hard evidence. Um, if you go to the link that is included in the in the handout, you'll see last year we launched a dashboard of, uh, of Chinese public diplomacy. Again, public data, no firewall, uh, where users can essentially download cuts custom cuts of both the financial data as well as data on some of uh, you know, these public diplomacy overtures. Uh, users can generate publication quality visuals based on uh, any sort of filters they'd want to apply. We're also hoping to have geospatial data in this dashboard by end of the year. So we're hoping that you know, this uh, dashboard of public diplomacy can serve as a one-stop uh, primer on, on quantitative on a quantitative view of Chinese public diplomacy in different parts of the world. Um, uh, that said, uh, you know, the reason we are all here is to understand resources that are available for pretty much everyone on this webinar and others to basically shine the spotlight on the CCP's actions. And I strongly encourage folks, you know, to go to www.aiddata.org backslash China and uh, play around with some of the publicly available uh, research findings and hard data that we have available there. Walter, over to you. Uh, great, thank you, Sid. Um, I appreciate that. You know, you, you really put your finger on it when you say quantifying China's soft power because um, there's so much opinion out there and, you know, a lot of really good opinion. I won't say all of it's good, but a lot of really good opinion. And there's a lot of analysis uh, that's also good, but I think especially in Washington, we have a tendency towards sort of uh, lawyerly arguments. You know, we sort of pile evidence on top of evidence, mm -hmm. gradually create a case uh, for our, our argument, but it's not quantified. So what we're trying to do here is just exactly what you are. We're trying to bring attention to efforts like yours that is quantifying uh, what's out there so that um, we can be a little bit more specific and accurate about exactly what's going on and then inform uh, policymakers uh, along those lines. Uh, thank you very much for that. I'm, I'm sure folks will have some questions for you in the in the um, Q&A session. Uh, so then uh, next I wanted to turn it over to uh, Reagan Kwan, who's going to talk to us about the uh, Stimson Center's uh, Mekong Infrastructure Tracker Program. Thank you, Walter, for, uh, for the invitation as well as uh, providing this platform uh, to showcase our project. Uh, so the Mekong Infrastructure Tracker is hosted by the Stimson Center and supported by USAID's uh, Mekong Safeguard Activity, uh, which is implemented by the Asia Foundation. Um, it's an online ecosystem of interactive tools and resources, which leverages geospatial data um, to provide information on the state of infrastructure development and emerging trends in the greater Mekong subregion. Um, that does include projects in China with transboundary implications um, and builds on the useful work uh, that my colleagues uh, Brian Eiler and Courtney Weatherby are doing and have done at the Simpson Center on Mekong policy issues. Uh, so this project is focused on providing infrastructure development data in an accessible manner uh, through the tools while also maintaining data transparency and accuracy. When it comes to geospatial data on our platform, uh, we focus on two general categories. Uh, first, data based on satellite imagery and algorithms. And secondly, data collected through online research and human input. So uh, the maps on this slide come from one of our tools, the Project Impact Screener, and shows geospatial data from satellite imagery. Um, the, bottom, uh, the image at the bottom left uh, shows areas of land that would be flooded if sea levels were to rise by one meter, as well as two Chinese-sponsored coal power plants in northern Vietnam. As well, the image on the right shows the area around Lower Sisan 2 Dam in Cambodia and how it caused forest loss as a result of reservoir buildup. In these cases, uh, satellite imagery was used to calculate the height of pixels or the amount of a certain combination of surface reflectance using machine learning algorithms. Um, but these are the types of data that are usually more accessible and for the most part free for users um, publicly and researchers. Um, as, a, as a result, it's also harder to hide the kind of um, environmental and socioeconomic data that could be extracted through satellites. Um, however, uh, a major caveat is that um, satellite imagery is um, in need of ground truthing or in-situ information. Uh, this usually comes in the form of monitoring like weather stations or sending research teams out to collect data, um, as well as working with relevant government agencies or other local organizations. Um, however, when it comes to regions in the world where data collection 
is either unreliable um, or scarce or governments aren't willing to share information, um, we as researchers must rely on the best available data sets like these. In the next slide, uh, this shows screenshots of the kind of data our team collected through online research over the past couple of years. Um, all of these are images from our primary tool, the Mekong Infrastructure Tracker Dashboard. Uh, the types of data we've been collecting include project location, uh, project specifications like generating capacity in megawatts, year of completion, and project cost, um, as well as stakeholder information like lender financier, uh, sponsored developer, or construction companies involved, as well as uh, their countries of origin. These images provide a glimpse into how our team has decided to present our data through the dashboard. Um, these also include geospatial information, uh, like coordinates, as you can see in the energy infrastructure project on the top left, as well as spatial lines, uh, like the high-speed rail um, in the bottom right image um, that will soon connect Kunming in Yunnan, China, to Yanchen in Laos. Additionally, we present our users with the information and tool as a list as shown in the top right and charts on the bottom left. Um, the project detail list um, on the top right shows the Shaowan Dam in Yunnan, uh, where we've included information like the sponsors and financiers and construction companies, as you can see. Um, the same information also, is also displayed in the charts that our viewers can use um, and filter through as a tool. In this example, we're looking at the generating capacity of power plants across sponsor country and energy type. Uh, we see in that chart that power plants owned by Chinese companies are generating the third most electricity after Thai and Vietnamese companies. Uh, this is the kind of information that we provide to our users, um, and it's been um, a, a method of showcasing our data in easy to digest um, in, a, in an easily digestible manner. And we look through um, the projects through various publicly available sources, including documentation from media outlets, uh, private stakeholders, government ministries, as well as international organizations. Uh, in a data scarce region like Southeast Asia, um, it can be difficult to kind of maintain data accuracy and quality without going through our own internal review process. Um, and with China being one of the largest regional investors for infrastructure projects um, in Southeast Asia, we often find certain data to be harder to find. Um, Luckily, uh, there already exist databases focused on collecting foreign investment um, from organizations and projects like ADATA, CSIS, as well as AEI um, that we've used to help build up on our own work that's focused on Southeast Asia. And then on a final note, um, our team is currently constructing new infrastructure databases, including industrial spaces. Uh, these are areas that generate a lot of commercial or industrial activity, including special economic zones, border economic zones, industrial zones, as well as various types of ports. Uh, we're also planning on uh, creating a reservoirs database uh, that looks beyond hydroelectric um, reservoir, or hydroelectric dams and the reservoirs, uh, but beyond that scope to look at all types of reservoirs, as well as transmission lines for the region. Uh, we hope that this gives our users the most comprehensive outlook on infrastructure development in the region. And as we continue to build up our databases, uh, we're looking for more effect effective ways to collect data in the region. Thank you. Great. Thank you, uh, Reagan. Appreciate that. Uh, like I say, you all do fine work on this. Um, we're going to move to question and answer here, but I want to ask Reagan, uh, first of all, a question from our, from our audience. Um, someone points out that reporting from China on infrastructure is inconsistent. I would say that's an understatement, but, but it certainly is inconsistent. Uh, and it's not up to global standards. How do you maintain consistency and and keep your um, data to some sort of uh, professional standard? That's that's a good question. Um, so we go out about it two ways: through an internal review process and also transparency. Um, we are well aware of um, inaccuracies among sources that we gather information from. In which case, on the transparency side, we provide all that information upfront to our users in all of the links that we have provided in project detail panels. Um, in, term of, in terms of our internal uh, review process, uh, we don't put out information until we've done our own due diligence on our own side. Uh, when we do get submissions uh, from the general public, um, and it's one of our ways to engage with the community as well. Um, this does look into um, what kind of source they provided um, 
and whether that source in itself is reliable. Uh, we generally prefer private stakeholder information as well as government agencies. Um, but when we're talking about ministries and agencies, we're uh, mainly focused on the five mainland Southeast Asian agencies, um, as China does not always provide this kind of information. And we do um, assume at least that those local agencies and, and ministries are providing more accurate information than um, their counterparts in China would otherwise. Right. Right. Okay. All right. Great. Thank you. Um, this relates to you, but, it, but uh, I, I, I think it relates to the others as well. Um, one of the questions that's come in here is, um, has there been a reaction or adjustment on the Chinese side to any of your efforts? That is, if, you know, the, the information is scarce for a reason. It's because the Chinese Communist Party is very much reliant on secrecy and has been notoriously since the beginning. Uh, and so that's no accident. So they must adjust to your efforts, whether it's on infrastructure, whether it's on social media or whatever, to continue to um, to uh, to do these things in ways that are not as easily as easily traceable as you have um, as you have made them to be. So can you answer that, Reagan, first, and then I'd like to hear from the other two as well. Yeah, I actually think uh, Sid um, and his work at ADATA might might um, reflect this kind of work more so than I would. I think there hasn't been as large of a reaction only because the information we're collecting is publicly available. Um, and to an extent, informally, most of these are BRI-related. Uh, whether or not they're officially documented, uh, there's really no clue because there is no official documentation on it. Um, so it is more of that soft diplomacy and soft power kind of aspect that may kind of um, radiate an image of um, benevolence or um, goodwill in terms of the development that they're kind of um, implementing in the region in terms of infrastructure development. So I wouldn't see it as um, a negative light in terms of how China would react to the work we're doing in this project alone. I see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. As I know um, with Derek's project, I think Zach or someone else mentioned earlier, the project that Derek's now, Derek Scissors at AEI has done for 10 years or more uh, on Chinese investment. Um, one of the problems that he's always had and managed to deal with it very successfully by staying up late every night to track uh, Chinese investments is that uh, the, the releases and that sort of thing that announced them may not be available next time you go back to them. So you have to have a very good uh, paper trail because suddenly they're pulled down. For what reason? It's really hard to know. Uh, maybe just a um, just an instinct for, for not keeping things out there too long. But Zach, what about with you? Is that is that an issue with you, adjustments on the Chinese side? So that actually hasn't been a huge issue for us. I think the bigger issue for us is that some of the platforms are much more transparent than others. So Twitter, for example, lets you access a huge amount of information about what happens on their platform. You can figure out who logs in, when they log in, where they're logging in from, what kind of computer often or device. Um, you can gather a huge amount of information on Twitter. It's much more difficult on Facebook and, and YouTube to some extent. Um, and you know that is the kind of data for us that's really critical, right? It's really important to be able to see when an account is posting. Right. And for us to be able to gather all that data easily. And so um, I, I think in general, the uh, platforms that have been more transparent are the ones that are actually able to get better uh, handle uh, around the either um, malign activity that's going on on their platforms um, or, you know, just allow researchers like us to cooperate with them so that when we see problems that we can let them know and vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that transparency has really been, been critical. But in fact, I'll just note what we've seen on our end is actually a real um, expansion of Chinese activity on Twitter, on Facebook and elsewhere over the last year or so. And I think there were two things that prompted it. The first was uh, the protests in Hong Kong. Uh, after those protests started, you saw a massive increase in the number of Chinese government and government-connected accounts on Twitter. And then second, uh, just what's happened around COVID the last uh, six months, we've seen a real explosion of accounts 
uh, that have come up after that, and they've been messaging a lot about COVID. Um, so if anything, we're actually seeing uh, the Chinese government, I think, double down on these efforts to use social media uh, to influence opinions outside of China. What about in terms of identity? Because part of your part of your effort is to try to identify the nature of the post, right? The, where it's coming from. Are there attempts to mask that? Say once once uh, sort of they're found out that they shift to new accounts. Absolutely. And what we track now is uh, government accounts, but we do watch quite closely for what we would call coordinated inauthentic behavior. So this would be, you know, the creation of huge numbers, tens of thousands often of accounts that are uh, clearly manipulated, uh, whether they're directly manipulated by the Chinese government or uh, influenced in some way by the government, but through a private source, we can't always show that. Um, but we do watch that quite closely. I have a colleague, uh, Brett Schaefer, who runs the Hamilton 2.0 dashboard, and he is every day watching exactly what's going on with you know large numbers of accounts doing inauthentic behavior and trying to track down um, what they're doing, why they're doing it, and what the purpose is, right? Because at the end of the day, I think for a lot of us, that's what we care about. We want to know what the Chinese or others are trying to get out of this behavior, right? Are they trying to insert a positive narrative about China, which is what they've typically done on these kinds of sites? Or increasingly, are they trying to insert a negative narrative, whether it's about Hong Kong protesters or you know, a specific government, whether it's the US government or the Australian government most recently? And so we spend a lot of time trying to look at those accounts and get a better understanding of exactly what's going on. And often what we've seen recently is you know, the Chinese government even, and some of the spokespeople for the foreign ministry are retweeting uh, conspiracy theory sites with ideas that actually came from Iran or from, or from Russia. Um, so there's a little bit of an amplification of messages that try and tear down uh, democracies and build up autocratic regimes. Interesting. Uh, Sid, what about you on the... the um the effort of the Chinese side to make adjustments in what they what they post, what kind of information they make available in any regard? Yeah, great question. And again, I resonate with a lot of what Reagan and Zach said. Um, I think at our end, what we've realized is source triangulation for the kind of global data sets we put together is a lot more work, but it's the only way to get at accurate information. Um, I'll, I'll use a tangible example. We've been mining something called the China Foreign Affairs Yearbooks, if people are familiar with those, uh, to mine various soft power indicators in terms of human exchanges, in terms of uh, high level party visits that happened. And we've, re we've realized that even if you look at Chinese sources, when you compare the China Foreign Affairs Yearbook, for instance, to the uh, website of the, of the CCP, the accounting standards are different without really making that a pattern. So you're dealing with apples and oranges for the same thing. So what we've started doing over, over the last, you know, I'd like to say five or six years is put a heavy focus on source triangulation. Are we able to corroborate that, corroborate a specific data point or information across multiple sources? Um, we've also noticed the last time we had a big splash data launch with the China official finance data, the Chinese embassy in DC actually reached out to us and requested a briefing. And uh, we were over in DC and we ran them through our methodology, our numbers. Uh, and, you know, they were honestly speaking, very appreciative of our efforts, but you know, nothing happened after that. There wasn't really any outreach, not that we were expecting that to happen in a big way. Um, the other thing I'd say, and, uh, you know, this is something that we realized through trying to mine a lot of Chinese uh, reports to get hard numbers, is that there's a lot of information that's available inside of China that is just not accessible to us operating, you know, here in North America. We've realized I have, I have come across websites that have pretty numbers that are just so layered within a website that unless I knew specifically where to look, I would never find that information. So, you know, I also do agree that, you know, it's not, a, it's not just coincidence that this information is hard to come by. It may, it may just be intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you sort of um, uh, struck a nerve with your reference to sharing the methodology with the Chinese embassy. And maybe I don't fully understand the way you go about this, but um, do you have any concerns about that? I mean, it, it seems like in in a lot of these cases, maybe represented on this call, maybe others, 
that would give the Chinese a perfect opportunity to adjust the way that they release information, what they say in it, and, and all the rest. If you tell them exactly how you have figured this out. Great point, Walter. Again, um, you know, with our methodology, one of the reasons we are able to, you know, stand by findings that may not make a lot of people across the board happy is simply because right from right from the time when we launched our very first. Uh, data set on anything to do with China, we made the methodology publicly available because our our pitch was, hey, if the right now all of our numbers we can't we refer to them as estimates simply because they aren't really validated by the CCP or the Chinese government. Mm-hmm. So you know my pitch to you know any Chinese group I've always spoken to is, hey, put me out of a job, validate these numbers, right? Yeah. So um, so yeah uh, yeah. Right. Well, I mean, the, the Chinese could put this whole project out of commission if they would just be more transparent about what they're doing across the board. Zach, did you have something? I, I was just going to add, you know, on that point, right, that we have seen some initial efforts, I think, in other areas, for sure, by the Chinese, uh, I think by the government, um, but not directly, uh, to try and provide transparent information. Um, so the the one that strikes me as particularly interesting is uh, called the South China Sea Probing Initiative, which is clearly a Chinese version of uh, the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative. And they put out some data, um, which often rebuts what the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative does at CSIS. But of course, uh, they don't put out all the data. They just put out little bits and pieces. And if you actually dig into a lot of the data, you find, well, there's pieces that are missing to make an argument. And so I think so often what it comes back to is just making sure that we have, you know, fully transparent information on our end. People can delve into our websites. They can see what's there and what's not there. And we try and be as open as possible about that. And then if you want to try and do that on the competing Chinese website, that's fine. I don't think you'll get very far, but you're welcome to try and do it. And at the end of the day, we let users uh, decide Mm -hmm. for themselves, which they think is more trustworthy. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of a um, damned if you do, damned if you don't sort of scenario. But I think I think you choose the right one when you are as transparent yourself as possible because it puts the numbers beyond reproach. And it's not really aimed at the Chinese so much as it is third parties, I imagine. So anyone trying to evaluate your information is not susceptible to an argument that's, oh, they just hate China. You know, uh, German Marshall Fund and Heritage and AEI, they hate us. And so they just print all this bad information. So you have to put it out there. That's, you know, that's been our philosophy sort of in Asian Study Center for a long time to be fully documented because of that that threat. I got to say that there's fewer people listening to them than there were 10 years ago. You know, 10 years ago, it was harder because there were a lot of people that were open to their refutations of the various data, but less of that. Still, I, I could see I could see the need uh, to do that. Um, we had a couple questions about COVID, and I think maybe, Zach, you touched on this a little bit, that is the impact of COVID on information. I'm not sure what kind of impact it could have. Maybe the amount, uh, the amount of information, whether the controversies over secrecy and the rest in China, you know, going back to the beginning of the crisis, whether that has caused a loosening of information or a tightening. Um, Reagan, what, what about you? Is that, is it related all to your, your work? No, I don't think there's been a tightening of information. Um, And I think mainly because our program and our tool comes from the perspective of what's happening in Southeast Asia. And China just happens to be one of the regional major players in that field. So we are still seeing a lot of development occurring in infrastructure um, in Southeast Asia. And I think because Southeast Asia, relatively speaking, has been reacting much better to COVID, um, it hasn't really stopped a lot of this development. So I, I still do see, as, as I'm researching and building up new data sets, that there still are a lot of publicly available data sets out there, or not data sets, um, reports out there, um, mostly by media reports, of course, but um, also through associations and, and other agencies and, and stakeholders. Um, that development is still occurring. That information is still flowing in. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. And just else? to build on, yeah, what Reagan was saying, you know, I, I think what we've seen is COVID really is a major focus for Chinese government affiliated websites and media efforts, um, at least on our platform. So if you were to go into our Hamilton 2.0 dashboard right now, you see the top four uh, tweets, the, the hashtags on those tweets uh, for all of our Chinese language accounts. It's COVID-19, China, U.S., coronavirus. Those are the top four. Um, this is a big messaging effort on their part. And I think one of the big surprises for many of us is that we're very used to seeing the Russians engage in disinformation on social media, but not that much of that kind of behavior by China. And one thing that, uh, you know, I mentioned it briefly earlier, we've seen active disinformation efforts by the Chinese government, by the foreign ministry spokespeople, which they've done on Twitter, on Facebook and elsewhere to promote these crazy conspiracy theories, right? That COVID started at Fort Detrick in the United States and it was passed to China by an American sports team, this kind of stuff. And they've really been promoting that online, which is just a totally different set of behavior than what we saw before COVID. So I do think we've seen a, a pretty substantial change, a move towards you know what the Chinese have been calling wolf warrior diplomacy, using sort of every means, even if it's quite aggressive and inflammatory to try and get their message so even if the official official accounts like the ambassador to South Africa goes dim, there are these other uh, 50 cent army people out there who can continue the continue the war. Um, Sid, did you have anything to add on that? So uh, from a data again, uh, anecdotally, I have heard from a lot of collaborators in China that there is a tightening of information. And, you know, when people have essentially tried to, again, cross check information from multiple different Chinese sources, they have often, you know, contradicted contradicted each other. But uh, no, we haven't really encountered any. Uh, this hasn't really directly impacted our work yet. You know, there's another couple questions here about um availability of information in Southeast Asia or elsewhere in the region. Um, and I'm not quite sure what they're getting at either, uh, one, by comparison, how good or bad are the Chinese? Like I imagine the Vietnamese government is not very transparent either. And many of the other countries in the region, governments aren't, aren't because of, you know, not fully competent governments in some cases. But in the case of Vietnam, for much the same reason the Chinese aren't, uh, transparent. So I don't know if that's the point they're getting at the, the transparency or um, whether they're talking about gaining information on what you're doing, what you're tracking through third parties, say like information that the Vietnamese may have about Chinese uh, investments. Um, but either angle of that, uh, do, do any of you want to take that? Maybe Reagan, that seems to be in your territory. Sure. Um, that would be correct in saying that relatively i mean objectively speaking these are not the most um open societies or countries um specifically with information but i think from the standpoint of the project and what we're tracking um these are at least on a governmental level um positive impacts economically socially etc um to the countries that they belong to i mean special economic zones provide so much economic benefit that there would be no reason to not publicly showcase that information. And I think that's something that we've seen a lot, especially with Vietnam, when we're collecting information, there are websites either by private stakeholders that are funded by government or government sponsored websites that really provide a comprehensive list of all that and all the projects that we need. Um, they've made it very easy for us. Um, although we're not the intended target, I, I do believe um, investors are the intended target. We have been using that information um, for that purpose. Um, so it, it is, I guess, from that standpoint, um, something that works in our favor. Um, but we also do take a lot of the information we have with a grain of salt. Um, and when we do work and research on these projects that are a little harder to find, um, it rarely comes from the point of view of stakeholders that may be negatively affected by it, um, including local communities that may be displaced, um, as well as NGOs and um, that are environmentally or socioeconomically focused on at least marginalized communities in the region. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that we have seen less of. Um, 
And as, in, in terms of the data that can be collected from that and that can be quantified, it's a little harder to um, grasp. But it is something that we are interested in, especially with um, industrial spaces. I think displacement is a big topic of conversation. Um, but because there's so little, um, not momentum, but there's so little, uh, like a one unified approach to it, um, that this information that we do get is really difficult to gather. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can imagine the governments in the region have mixed motives uh, with their own information. I mean, especially the ones who are towards the more authoritarian line, end of the spectrum. Um, and, and with the case of the Vietnamese, in some cases in the um, Mekong, they've got the worst deal uh, being so far downstream and they're suffering a lot of effects and have reasons to uh, publish information mm -hmm. the way they do that may be beyond just plain transparency. Uh, one of the one of the things I think gets missed in the debate in Washington over China so often is, you know, Vietnamese, Vietnam makes sort of a, a natural partner in many ways, but it's also a communist dictatorship, you know, and it has that in common with with China. Um, did you have anything you wanted to add on that, Sid? Sure, maybe real quick. Uh, maybe before I react to that, I'll share one finding that really surprised me. This, this is from our public diplomacy research uh, in the East Asia and Pacific. Um, we actually found when we were looking for, you know, China's making all of these investments, right? Uh, whether they're loans, grants, or actually, you know, acquisition of equity through greenfield or brownfield uh, M&A or acquisitions, right? Um, what we found was in terms of the perceptions dividend that China gets, uh, we found that China actually gets better bang for buck by simply having a big splashy event where it announces a certain pledge to build, you know, let's take a infrastructure project. Um, and, you know, very often, as we know, not a penny actually hits the ground after that big bang announcement. But what we've seen is in terms of when you look at input data in terms of this sort of money or simply the promise of money being made and the, and the changes in leader and citizen perceptions, we actually see that China gets a bigger uh, positive perception bump from just announcing projects without necessarily following them through as opposed to actually, you know, laying a brick on the basis of the earth. I found that very interesting. Oh, yeah. So I thought I'd uh, share that first. And then in terms of transparency, you know, I think um, another thing that I was quite surprised to learn in speaking with government officials in countries like Kazakhstan, Bangladesh and Sri Lanka, um, you know, what uh, what I've repeatedly been told is oftentimes officials in the Ministry of Energy have no clue about the actual terms that that ministry has signed on to, say, build a hydropower plant with China or they typically have no clue about what the competitive bidding process for that contract looked like, right? So oftentimes uh, mm -hmm. it's an information asymmetry at the recipient country level. And, uh, you know, uh, Walter, you mentioned this, Reg, and you spoke a little bit about this. I, uh, I definitely think, um, and I've seen some research out there that links this to the nature of the regime in the countries that China is doing business with, because we aren't seeing this across the board. We are seeing this in certain types of countries. Oh, yeah, that's, uh, you know, another thing I think that gets lost sometimes in the echo chamber is um, it takes two to tango, you know, with all of these various infrastructure projects, right. there's corruption involved, you can't, you can't conduct a corrupt um, investment unless both sides of the equation are corrupt in some way. And, uh, um, but let me, let me end with this question, I'll ask each of you maybe to respond just, uh, just in a minute or two, but what is the one area in your research that is sort of still to be discovered that you know is missing and you want to get at it and you're having a hard time uh, figuring out uh, that one aspect of it. Uh, when we start with Zach. Fantastic question. I, I think for me, uh, and I, I'm interested in whether Siddhartha and Reagan have the same uh, issues, it's impact. So, we can track what China, Russia, and Iran do online, but at the end of the day, what I really care about is, is that changing views in not just the United States, but, you know, especially Southeast Asia. And for, for me, as somebody who cares about, you know, the region, really want to know, like, in the places that we're most worried about, Southeast Asia in particular, are, are views changing because of these influence efforts? 
And we just don't have great data on that. And it's not that we don't try and collect it. It's just there's so many variables. It's so hard to collect and understand exactly how views are changing, right? And and part of what's important, and Startha, you know, I think was referencing this earlier, like it, it's sometimes China can get a really big bump from making an announcement, right? And they actually don't follow through with any of the spending. I've done a little bit of Belt and Road research before, and often you find this. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, does that hurt China 10 years from now, 15 years from now? We just don't know the answer. And I think we're seeing the same thing online where, yeah, you know, does this disinformation about uh, COVID-19, does that help China in the short term in some ways? You know, maybe, maybe it hurts democracies a little bit in the short term. But I can tell you, I think it alienates a lot of people when they see this kind of stuff. It really makes Americans angry. Um, so I, I think that impact issue for me is the one that we're all, at least in my world, still struggling to get our hands around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's almost like the Chinese work too hard at it. I mean, if they were doing so well, the demonstration effect alone would prove the point and there would be others to make their case. They That's wouldn't right. have, to have a, an army to do that online. Um, Reagan? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would mirror a lot of what Zach said. The impact of, at least from my, our perspective, of these infrastructure projects in the region has not generally been shared, um, not only just from outside investors to the Region, to the region, but also within the region uh, between these countries. So we're really trying to work at understanding impact in the Mekong Basin um, using more of a wider assessment um, rather than just sponsor developer and country. Uh, we're really looking for more stakeholder involvement, including local communities that are affected by this. And that's 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 been probably one of the hardest things to um, get at is that we are trying to connect groups that have all the power um, to groups that are going to be impacted the most from from these projects. Um, and what I mean, our, this project really started out as um, hydroelectric dams on the Mekong, um, and we've kind of widened that scope to all types of infrastructure. Um, and I think that really provides a really good outlook as to what kind of influences are playing in this region in infrastructure development and how does that affect um, socioeconomic and environmental factors in the region as a whole. Yeah. You know, um, I boost uh, Stimson's work on this so much. They got to think I'm looking for a job at this point. But but really, the uh, the thing is, the, the Mekong is overlooked in terms of its importance. It really is the South China Sea without the Seventh Fleet. You know, they're, they're, they're without recourse, really, to... Uh, international law like you have in the South China Sea. I don't want to say there's none. You know, I may get some comments about that. I know there are is some international law, but it doesn't have the same effect and you don't have the Seventh Fleet there in, in American support and you don't have international exposure. Um, so I'm glad that we're getting more exposure to it. I've seen a big uptick in that in the last couple of years, but it's been a long time coming. We've been talking about the South China Sea now for 10 years, almost nonstop, with not a lot of new stuff being said in that time. But, but uh, the Mekong is something we really need to focus on. And let, let me wind it up with Sid on this question of whether there's gaps in your research uh, areas that you want to see covered and, and you just um, have a hard time getting that. Thanks, Walter. Um, I couldn't agree more with uh, Zach and Reagan that, you know, having a lot more information on outcomes, basically being able to able to answer the question, so what? Right. We have all of these. We're tracking all of these overtures on China's part. And I, uh, I totally agree that, you know, the so what question is somewhat underserved. Um, to actually put some examples into that uh, into that argument, you know, there are all of these regional barometers that Asia barometer, Latin barometer, Afro barometer, you know, and all of these barometers have one or two questions in there asking people either about Chinese people or the Chinese government's performance. Um, there's also all of the information from the folks at Gallup World Poll. However, there's really no single source. And I realize this is extremely difficult. Being a data producer myself, I realize how extremely difficult it is to have, you know, one outcome indicator at a global level. But I do think, you know, that is the need of the hour. Um, I think in terms of a gap, and, you know, um, it's only recently that I have uh, started thinking a lot about this. I think there's a lot of evidence out there. I think we need to, um, I think the last mile barrier is something that, you know, speaking only for aid data, we are 
you know, trying to figure out creative ways to get past that. And what I mean by that is, let me tell, again, take an actual example. When I was in Bangladesh last year and I was conducting key informant interviews with folks on the ground on Chinese influence in Bangladesh. And what I heard across the board was that Bangladesh is squarely focused on, on graduating uh, from the least development country status in the next two years. And to do, to do that, they need to fund all of this development on the ground. So while folks, you know, within, within various ministries within the government of Bangladesh are aware of all of this evidence existing that they could potentially use to, you know, either get themselves better loan terms when using China as, as a lender or just like, you know, cutting themselves a sweeter deal. Um, it's not apparent to me that, you know, there is enough incentive to make use of this, uh, you know, all of this publicly available information and actually take, take a decision that's, that's different. So I feel like, you know, while we are all doing super cool work, collecting all of this data and putting together all of these findings, I think a lot of work also needs to be done towards the last mile, making sure that all of this is actually being used. Um, I think that's, that's what I'd end with. That's a really good point, Sid. Thank you for that. Well, I think in the course of this, um, I've sort of formulated the the goal of the project that we're working on with you guys um, for the Chinese to put us out of business. You know, I think that, I think that's what we need. <laughs> They're never going to put us out of business by restricting the information or hiding it or finding new ways to mask it. The only way they're going to put us out of business is by providing the information themselves and, and getting out of the uh, the business of uh, of uh, posting anonymously or, or semi-anonymously on, on Facebook and Twitter and, and all the rest. So thank you very much, guys, for, for joining us for this. It was a terrific discussion. We learned a lot about what you've got going on and uh, all the great work you're doing. Um, we hope to continue to work together and, um, and, and eventually put ourselves out of business. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you so much thank to you. everyone at Heritage. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.